African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's a new week and it's almost the end of the year. Can you believe it's the 14th of November 2016? So we only have just a few more weeks before we're having Turkey and Christmas celebrations here on the continent of Africa. Thank you for joining us here on African Dialogue where we'll look at big events taking place on the continent of Africa. Today we'll be focusing on the 22nd Conference of the Parties of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. We know that's commonly known as COP22. If you don't know what that is, it's usually a big gathering that takes place every year that looks at uh, the issue of climate change. This year it's held in Marrakesh, which is Morocco. So we'll be looking at what are the real reasons people are there? What does this actually gathering cement for issues of climate change? And also what does it mean for uh, countries such as South Africa and the rest of the continent? We'll be looking at that today. But let's get our news update from Anne Musa. In the headlines, a faction of Lesotho's Prime Minister, Pagadita Musasidi's party, the Democratic Congress, gives him an ultimatum to resign or be expelled from the party. The United Nations Security Council calls for an end to acts of terrorism in Benin, the DRC, and a suicide bomber kills six people near Iraq's Shiite city of Kebela. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. A faction of Lesotho's Prime Minister, Pagadita Musasidi's party, the Democratic Congress, has given him an ultimatum to move from the government benches in Parliament and resign from Cabinet or be expelled from the party. The party's deputy, Monyani Muleleki, is heading the faction. Leader of South Africa's opposition, EFF, Julius Malema's case has been postponed to the 5th of June next year in the Bloemfontein Magistrates Court. Earlier, civil rights group AfriForum said its case against Malema was aimed at holding politicians accountable. AfriForum is a complainant in the case against Malema. Members of the United Nations Security Council visiting the Democratic Republic of Congo have called for an end to acts of terrorism taking place in Beni. The delegation, led by Angola and France, travelled to the north Kivu town to assess the security situation there. A suicide bomber has killed six people in a rural area west of Iraq's Shiite Muslim city of Karbala, this says locals were preparing for a major religious event. The bomber blew himself up in Amin Amtar after security forces killed five of his accomplices and surrounded him in a house.
The attack comes as Iraq Shiite majority are preparing to mark Abahin, the end of a 40-day mourning period for Imam Hussein, the Prophet Muhammad's grandson. A terrorist attack against worshippers in a Sufi shrine in southwestern Pakistan has been condemned by the United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. The bomb blast killed 52 people and wounded 100 others. Recapping the top stories, the faction of Lesotho's Prime Minister Pagadita Musisidi's party, the Democratic Congress, has given him an ultimatum to resign or be expelled from the party. The United Nations Security Council has called for an end to acts of terrorism in Benin, the DRC, and suicide bombers killed six people near Iraq Shiite city of Kerbala. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you for joining us here on our program, African Dialogue. Remember, we come to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. You're with me, Benjamin Mushatama, hosting your program. Remember, you can interact with us online on uh, our Twitter handles. Our Twitter handles are at Channel Africa 1 or our other one here on African Dialogue is at African Dialogue. You can also Facebook us on our Facebook uh, page. That's simply titled uh, Channel Africa. We want to also get your views on our stories or what you think of our programming. You can do that by emailing us at info at channelafrica.org. Well, the 22nd session of the Conference of the Parties, known as uh, COP22, it's underway in Marrakesh, uh, Morocco. Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Kyoto Protocol meet once a year at high level to discuss how to advance international action to combat climate change. Last year, 195 countries adopted the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. It was a a big moment for the environmental industry and the environmental world. It was the world's first universal legal binding climate deal. The conference in Marrakesh aims to demonstrate that commitments made in Paris are being implemented and also to make sure that there's an action plan that is coming after the happenings in Paris uh, last year. But let's start our conversation with our first guest who's joining us on the line. That's Dominique Doyle, who is the project coordinator at Earth Life Africa. Dominique, thank you for giving us your time. It's been a while, so it's great to have you back on our program. Thank 
you very much. How are you doing? Fantastic. Now let's look at your thoughts around the gathering this time around. I know that the big conversation in Paris last year when last we spoke was the fact that uh, Paris gave the world a number two degrees, which is the maximum rise in temperature that the global uh, can experience in this century before climate change begins to unleash serious uh, consequences. What are the central themes that you think are coming out of COP22 this year? Uh, I know that there is a lot of conversation around Paris and how we can cement the plans of uh, 2015. Okay, Benjamin, this year, probably not the best person to speak to about COP this year because um, all of my energy this year is focused on our up-and-coming case against the nuclear deal. Sure. So I haven't really been keeping up that much, but my feelings about the COP still haven't changed. Mm. Um, I still don't think we can expect that much out of the Paris Agreement. I know certainly if you look at South Africa's commitments, it's not enough to keep global warming below catastrophic levels. And I think the recent weather in South Africa and in Johannesburg in particular and all over the country is testament to that. Climate change is real. And for most developing countries and least developed countries, a two-degree warming is um, probably not reachable. Mm. And um, we should be aiming for carbing and curving greenhouse gas emissions now to keep it below 1.5. Now, what's your thoughts around just the whole process since last year, since uh, 2015? Uh, Do you think enough was done to actually follow on some of these commitments that were made last year? You know, look, I think a lot of it is just um, lip service. Mm. And I don't think countries are putting well, especially the big polluting countries, the BRICS nations, are putting enough effort into into forcing transition so that we can reach um, global warming within acceptable levels. I know South Africa is not putting in the effort, India is certainly not putting in the effort, Russia is not putting in the effort, and these are the countries that really have the potential to cause the most danger. Mm. Well, let me bring in our other guest who's now joining us on the line, Nogutula Mene, who is a Food for Life Manager at Climate and Energy. Thank you for giving us your time, Nogutula. No, thank you for having me. Now, Nogutula, we were highlighting the idea with Dominic, and Dominic is not very optimistic about the gathering this year round of uh, what's happening in Marrakesh, saying, hey, it's just lip service and uh, not enough has been done to actually deal with this uh, uh, two degrees limit uh, of the temperature that was given in Paris last year. Are you a bit more optimistic than uh, my other guest? Well, yeah, I think I'd like to be optimistic because I think we've seen um, a level of commitment that we haven't seen before, and that has been really been signified by the ratification, a really quick ratification of the Paris Agreement. Um, however, we need to also keep up the pressure and actually say to governments that they actually need to come up with a two-year plan, which starts immediately, um, which results in a strong rule book for the agreement um, and faster and deeper emission cuts by all countries. Um, there's still some unfinished business from the Paris Agreement, particularly on the issue of finance, which still needs to be resolved. Um, but I think, again, we need to keep them on, 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 on our radar and actually put pressure. But the fact that there is some agreement 
there has been ratification, we need to actually give some credit there. Mm. There's a lot of conversations that are happening online around the new uh, U.S. president-elect, um, Nogutula, uh, Donald Trump, and around his perceptions on climate change, and everyone is awaiting his thoughts on what he thinks, because he has spoken around the idea that climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese industries there. Uh, is this something to worry about from an industrial perspective, especially uh, your industry where climate change is very central? Well, I think um, the U.S. election result um, has undetonated a, green- a grenade um, in the middle of this process. Um, but there are countries who are still who still remain completely committed to the fight against climate change. Um, we only hope that the new president-elect doesn't actually come in and derail everything that has been agreed to. Um, we hope that he can actually see the light and especially um, the impact that climate change has on vulnerable com- communities. I mean, right now we've committed to a 2 degree Celsius, uh, possibly 1.5 degrees Celsius, as Greenpeace we're calling for a limit of 1.5 degrees Celsius um, increase. And what that basically means is that we have to start now. We have to start cutting emissions now. We have to start nip climate change in its bud now. Mm. And we hope that this new president-elect actually comes on board with that. Mm. Dominique, let me bring that question back to you. Your thoughts around uh, Donald Trump's views on uh, climate change, him thinking that it's a complete myth and a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. What does that do for the industry and also the uh, ratifications that we saw last year achieved at the Paris uh, uh, gathering? Well, I think um, Donald Trump is going to spell disaster for the environmental movement. Mm. Um, he's already replaced the head of the EPA with a climate denialist. And I think all of the good work that Obama did in getting USA to come to the party is, is going to be wiped out. Um, I haven't really read much about his mm. accusations about the Chinese. Sure. I think <laughs> everything Donald Trump <laughs> says I take with a pinch of salt. Mm. And I can't believe he's actually there. Mm. But... Um, yeah, I think I think we're going to see now, you know, the Paris, the Paris agreements and the COP negotiations really mean for me, can countries work together mm. to create um, a common a common pathway to solving a common problem? Mm. And at the moment, I don't think we can. Mm. I mean, the COP, the climate negotiations over the years have shown one of the strongest collaborations from government worldwide. And we're now in the 22nd COP, mm. and have we really made inroads into solving the problem of climate change? Mm. Greenhouse gas emissions continue to soar, and I think that the role of civil society should be on putting pressure on their own governments rather than going every single year to have a look at the negotiations that really I don't think go very far or very fast. Mm. Mm. I know my organization, we... Um, concentrate mostly on national policy and we look at how the South African INDC doesn't contribute towards a fair share and how we are continuing to add coal to the to the South African grid whilst we are the 13th highest polluter in the world. 
Mm. So that's really where our work is focused, at the national level. Mm. Well, I'm going to take a quick break and then we'll come back to those uh, nuances that you're highlighting there in terms of uh, the country plans. Are they lining up to these agreements? And uh, the idea that uh, it's the 22nd COP itself, is there enough that's been done, as you asked there, Dominic Doyle? Those are some of the areas that we'll cover when we come back. If you're just joining us, we've got Dominic Doyle, who is a project coordinator at uh, Earth Life Africa, as well as no Gutula Mene, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, she is uh, from uh, the uh, Climate and Energy Food for Life manager there. I'm going to take a quick break. It's 11.15 Central African time. We'll be back after this. Change your game. Your game. Be the voice of young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Your game. A program that promotes open discussion. Change your game. We bring social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the global entrepreneurship ecosystem. Our mission is to produce relevant and vibrant content and conduct interviews with dynamic stakeholders within the African entrepreneurial ecosystem that informs, educates and entertains and empowers young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Change your game. Empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Tune in on Fridays, 1000 hours to 10:45 a.m. Central African time, and on Saturdays, 1300 hours to 1400 hours Central African time. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you for joining us on this Monday. Today we're looking at an environmental story, looking at what we can expect from COP22, which is currently held in Marrakesh, Morocco. And I have on the line Nogutula Amen, who's joining us. She is a Food for Life Manager at Climate and Energy. We also have Dominic Doyle, who is a Project Coordinator at Earth Life Africa. Nogutula, I want to come to you. I think uh, COP22 is very important in terms of clarifying and defining key issues covering the Paris Agreement. I know the main areas could be transparency, and I know what's also pivotal, how do we exactly monitor each country's climate change action? What are your thoughts on some of these areas? Are they difficult areas, especially the fact that we're now at a point where we're discussing implementation processes? Yeah, I mean, there are difficult, very difficult areas, um, especially when it comes to the monitoring itself. Um, will people be actually able to actually um, monitor, for one thing? Um, and if, is the plan going to be strong enough for people to actually have um, indicators, strong indicators that will enable monitoring? Um, so it's going to be a difficult thing. But from what we understand from the people who are on the ground um, in Marrakesh at the moment, um, the conference had a relatively smooth beginning. Uh, both start our works on the rule book, on the Paris rule book, and the plan for the next years has started. Um, there's writing on technical works. And so, I mean, what we really expect is Greenpeace coming out of this is a roadmap out of Marrakesh to guide the technical works before its finalization. Um, and what we're also expecting is um, something that we can use for a review next year, come 2018. Um, so we want to be able to do that. But we understand that there are some countries who might be a stumbling block. We also understand that there are some countries who might not be fully committed to that. And we hope that this is, this is, this is an opportunity that various countries 
um, and Marrakesh um, COP22 itself shouldn't miss. We need to get this right right from the beginning. Um, and we've got the political will right now, some form of political will, and we actually need to be able to ride on that. Um, mm. But there are sticky issues that we also need, and especially from an African perspective. Sure. The issue of the impact of climate change on agriculture needs to be of paramount importance. Um, we also need to be sure that the common but differentiated responsibility um, itself is actually still there um, and is not um, chucked out of, out of this plan. Mm. Uh, your thoughts there, Dominic, on that roadmap that we need to have an implementation process. I know that you think that it's just taking too long and every time we're gathering and we're discussing the nitty-gritties when we just have to get along with it. Your thoughts on, on the importance of clarifying that monitoring action, especially from country level, because you do work on a country level uh, basis. Um, well, there has to be closer scrutiny towards what countries say they are emitting and what they are actually emitting. Mm. I know that South Africa's emission trajectory is far off balance with its um, with its NDC, its nationally determined contribution. And I know that once Madupi comes onto the grid, we'll have no chance of meeting what we have pledged in terms of our national agreements. And if that's happening in South Africa, it must be happening really in most countries that are heavy emitters and coal polluters. Why, if we've made these international pledges that are going to become binding, are we continuing to add more coal onto the grid that's just going to make our um, objections, our objectives totally unreachable? So there has to be um, much more accountability and much closer scrutiny on what's being said and what's happening in reality on the ground. I'm also interested in the fact that, uh, you know, there's also domestic issues that, uh, you know, that are challenging for African countries. And maybe I should come back to you, Nogutula, on that. I mean, about 100 countries have ratified the Paris Agreement to date, but many developing countries, when we look at countries such as Nigeria, Angola, South Sudan, they are complicated by those domestic issues that they face, and it's very difficult for them to ratify. What can Marrakesh actually propose? for countries that have domestic challenges. Is there a way around this? Well, I think we need a reassurance about future funding. Um, And so I think a stumbling block in the country is actually committing to this is actually do we have the funding to actually do it. Um, And also another issue is that they've, I think, I hate to keep using the same word, um, but I think Countries actually need to come together. The issue of common but differentiated responsibility still Mm. needs to be there. Um, And so countries, perhaps in Africa, some of them do not feel that they should have to cut as much as other countries who have historical, historical, high historical emissions. And so that also just needs to be addressed. Um, So people need to come together and actually look. And I I feel that donors, um, especially those who, who, who have done the most to actually cause climate change, actually need to come to the table and actually build capacity, enable those countries that are unable to ratify this agreement at this stage, look at the stumbling blocks and actually try and bypass those stumbling blocks. But very important is the issue of funding, and that needs to be um, 
to be to be in the works. And what's the role, uh, Nugutula, of South Africa in, in that aspect of things? Does it play a leading role, especially with the challenges that we have here, with also the electrifying of the country and the fact that there's been a lot of uh, conversations around uh, coal-powered stations? Well, I think um, South Africa is seen as um, an, a leader within Africa. Um, and it's still seen, it continues to be seen as a leader despite the various problems that are in, in South Africa at the moment. And so we're urging South Africa to actually lead by example. We need to move towards renewable energy, uh, like Dominic is saying, and actually stop putting more money into coal and nuclear, like what has been the case now. Um, and as long as we want to position ourselves and South Africa wants to position itself as a key leader in the industry, we need to lead by example. Um, so we're urging South Africa to stop putting more money in coal, to actually move that money towards renewable energy, to stop um, investment in nuclear and actually move that towards more sustainable forms of renewable energy. And there are lots of... Um, um, examples that we can give. As Greenpeace Africa, we've got a lot of publications around this. Um, we've spoken to a lot of government officials around this, and we actually are in partnership at the moment with uh, Life Africa as well to actually say, listen, renewable energy is the way to go. And if we're going to have an Africa that is meeting its share, we actually need South Africa as a key lead. Mm. Well, the irony of that is, Nogutula, and maybe let me bring that to you, Dominic, is the fact that uh, our ruling party does not believe that renewable energy will be enough for the country's needs. We've decided on the nuclear deal. We've decided on diversifying our renewable energy as well with uh, coal-fired stations. And here we are where we need South Africa to be uh, the leading post for the rest of the continent. Does that irony not complicate the situation? I certainly hope we haven't decided on a nuclear deal, but um, we are going to court to challenge that on the 13th of December. Mm. But for me... um, it all boils down to politics at the end of the day because, look, the logical decision is to go renewable. In South Africa, we haven't managed to complete one coal-fired power station since the 80s. The only thing that has come onto the grid in um, the, the grips of a massive energy deficit is renewable energy, and it comes on cheaper and it comes on faster than any kind of energy out there. So the facts are clear. Coal-fired power stations are a thing of the past. Nuclear is the most expensive type of energy available, and we're going to lock South Africa into a dodgy deal with Russia for centuries to come. So what these negotiations are saying is, um, I don't know, because the answer is clear. You have to transition to renewable energy. And South Africa goes to these negotiations with its begging bowl in hand and says we're not going to do it unless we get international funding. Meanwhile, the South African government is about to commit us to a 1.86 trillion rand nuclear deal. So it just kind of makes no sense, right? Mm. We have the money for nuclear, but we don't have the money for renewable energy, which is cheaper and more effective. Mm. Dominic, how does that uh, complicate the fact that we are leading in the idea of the climate change conversation on the continent because Africa does look to us, South Africa, for guidance on those issues? I don't think Africa does look to us. Mm. Benjamin, I think we have a fairly, fairly bad name with the African groups. Sure. And in fact, I think South Africa is the Africa group has considered asking South Africa to leave because they don't feel that South Africa is a least developed country, nor is it suffering the same kind of 
um, hardships that they are in terms of access to funding for renewables. And also, South Africa isn't transitioning, and South Africa is the largest cause of climate change on the continent. So when we look to the north and talk about res uh, historical responsibility, mm. South Africa also has historical responsibility towards the rest of Africa. Mm. And we kind of don't play up to that responsibility. Nogutula, you want to come to that uh, aspect of things? Yeah, I mean, South Africa is the largest emitter on the African continent, so Dominique is, is correct there, and we support that, uh, that South Africa needs to put its fair share on, on the table. Um, and so, again, we keep calling for um, disinvestment from coal, divestment from coal, um, divestment from nuclear. Just to add something, I think whilst the renewable energy um, issue and the issue that South Africa is, is actually emitting is very, very important, it is of paramount importance, but also of importance is the impact that climate change is having. I mean, right now we see that we've had a drought, there's been a super El Nino um, that has seen a severe drought coming into South Africa and Southern Africa in general. Mm. Uh, we've seen uh, flooding for the people in the Horn of Africa, and we've seen an, a global situation where more than 9.7 million um, drought-affected people are in need of emergency food aid. Um, and so, I'm uh, sorry, I got that stat wrong, but over 39 million in Southern Africa mm -hmm. alone do not have mm -hmm. enough to eat. Um, and so we also need to think about the impact and the, the Makaresh roadmap actually needs to look at the impact and how we're actually going to help vulnerable communities. And again, I want to emphasize that within South Africa, we've seen a rise in food prices, which is affecting the normal person. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen a loss in food crops, which is affecting the farmer. And that is down to climate change. And so that also needs to be highlighted as an issue. Well, you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And today we're looking at uh, uh, COP22, which is taking place in Morocco. And uh, we have on the line Nogutula Man, who's joining us from Greenpeace Africa. She's a Food for Life manager at the Climate and Energy Department there. And also we've got on the line Dominic Doyle, who is the project coordinator uh, for Earth Life Africa. Now we're going to uh, take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll come and wrap up the conversation uh, with uh, what could we see as an outcome at uh, the uh, Marrakesh gatherings, which is looking at uh, climate change? And I know that a roadmap has to be unpacked now. And uh, as uh, was highlighted by uh, Nogutula, South Africa has experienced a big drought, not just South Africa, but uh, uh, SEDEC, the SEDEC region in itself. And we've been having heavy, strange rains in the last week or so. So it's been a very bizarre um, impact to see how climate change is having a role and actually uh, you know, it is devastating to see uh, the impacts of uh, the, ch the change in our climates. But give us your thoughts. Remember, you can interact with us on, t on Twitter at Channel Africa One. That's our uh, Twitter handle, or at uh, uh, African Dialogue. You can follow us there, on your, or you can Facebook us on uh, Channel Africa. That's our page. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll be back after this. <music> This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The time right now is 11.31 Central African time. And you're still with me, Benjamin Mushata. I'm right here on African Dialogue. I'm not alone on the line. I have Dominic Doyle, who is uh, joining us from Earthlife Africa, and Onogutula Man, who's joining us from Greenpeace Africa. Uh, one of the things that the Marrakesh negotiators will have to do is that they need to devise binding long-term strategies for implementing the different issues uh, and areas Uh, that will be covered from the Paris Agreement. But one thing that hampers this issue, something that you highlighted, Noctula, is the fact that uh, uh, the issue of raising that $100 billion in climate finances needed for developing countries by 2020 is one that still needs to be resolved. Uh, You know, how can we actually deal with this issue of financing, Noctula? Because that seems to be also a very area of um, uh, obstacle. Yeah, I mean, Alex, one country need to come to the table. Um, but then we also have an issue where we, where countries are actually asking um, the, the, the emerging nations, such as Brazil, India, who's, and China, whose emissions are actually quite high now, that they also need to come to the table and actually put something on the table. And so the, that needs to be clarified. Um, that's obviously a, a sticking point. Um, but again, the issue of common but differentiated responsibility needs to come into play here. Um, and to what extent, at what percentage do, does country X put in vis-a-vis country um, Z? Um, but having said that as well, when we look at it, we actually find that African countries have been already been putting in lots of money into their own adaptation processes. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like... Um, African countries or countries in the South in general are just sitting and waiting for the funding. And so that's something that needs to be highlighted and it needs to be recognized. But it doesn't take away from the fact that um, Annex 1 countries, those who have been um, historically emitted a lot, need to come to the table and actually help those, especially the vulnerable, who have done very little to cause climate change to actually be able to adapt and actually also be able to put in their own contingency measures to cut their own emissions. Mm. Uh, Dominic, your thoughts there on the issue of uh, climate financing, it still seems to be a challenge. Um, yeah, it is a challenge. I think that there's not enough money that was promised, and I think that all of these other world crises are going to take away from the available pot for adaptation financing, um, in particular the refugee crisis. And I think that adaptation financing has to go to the most vulnerable countries first, the Bangladeshis, the Vietnams, um, the Philippines. I think for more middle-income countries, especially BRICS nations, adapting is no longer uh, a choice that we can sit around and wait for financing for. It is in our best interest, and it's going to be in the long term more cost-effective for us. Um, even the more, most simple actions like proper maintenance of the roads, so cleaning out the stormwater drains so that we don't get massive flooding. That's an adaptation technique. And, you know, there's a fine line between providing proper services and mm. uh, proper forward thinking in your infrastructure mm. development mm. and climate change adaptation. It's, it's kind of like the same thing, right? So we should be doing it anyways. Mm. So where, where, where is it where, you know, you know, you, I, you ideally see this kind of friction between the international agenda and the national agenda because each country has uh, their own development plan and sometimes that conflicts with these climate change goals. And, and, and that's what we're seeing sometimes becoming the friction on African countries, Dominique. I think maybe 10 years ago we could say that 
there was um, a massive conflict between sure. the need for development and sustainable development. But today, those costs have the the cost of renewable energy is cheaper than coal. So it's it's in everybody's best interest to do sustainable development and proper sustainable development, and not to um, carry on extracting and using fossil fuels under the guise of development, because we know that hasn't worked in the past. We know that um, fossil fuels and extractive industries have created more poverty than alleviated it. So really, are we talking about um, the absolute yeah. dire need to transition and do sustainable development? Are we talking about politics and the influence of the elites and the rich who will gain most from the previous system. Mm. Uh, talking about governments, what is the role of the private sector in all of this, Nogutula? Do we need investments from them from a domestic level? Well, private sector needs to come to the table. Um, and we find a lot of this also in Africa where um, multinational corporations have actually come to, the, have, have come to Africa um, but unfortunately, and are responsible are responsible for some of the emissions that we see in Africa at the moment. Um, and so they need to come to the table. They need to play their role. Um, they also need to. We've seen a lot of tax evasion as well um, from these multinational corporations. And this is money that could actually be used for adaptation. Um, this is money that could actually be used to fund um, climate change mitigation. And so they actually need to come to the table and start um, evading, stop evading tax. Um, actually come to the table and help vulnerable communities to be able to adapt because, as Dominica said, it's no longer a choice. It's now something that we actually have to do. Um, and so we need to stop a situation where private sector is benefiting but without actually taking responsibility for their part. Well, let's wrap it up. We only have a few minutes left. Uh, uh, you know, I just want to go back to COP22 just to say what would we like to see from this COP22? I know there were some milestones that were seen with that uh, particular number of two degrees given as uh, a maximum rise in, in, in temperature. But was that enough? And that's what people are starting to question. What more can we do? It seems like every COP20 uh, 20-something, we're always asking that question, what more can we do? Uh, let me start with you, Nogutula. What do we want to see from COP22 to say, okay, now we've cemented something solid and it's a way forward after Paris? Well, first of all, I think we need to agree on additional measures to enhance climate action before 2020. Um, currently, what is on the table, what has been ratified, um, kind of gives an impression that perhaps countries are not sure what they've gotten themselves into. And so the current efforts that are on the table to actually reduce emissions are not going to be enough. Um, and so we're calling for in additional measures. Um, we also need to ensure that the Paris rulebook and the institutions supporting countries' efforts are fit for purpose, especially in light of the 1.5 degrees Celsius warming and other trans transformational goals in the agreement. These rules must be finalized by the end of 2018. We can't afford to wait for a long time without these rules being finalized because we've risked already going above that 1.52 degrees Celsius core. Um, and then what we actually need to do is also, like we were already talking about, is that when Come 2018, when countries come together to assess the adequacy of their actions, they come well prepared and ready to take on new or revised targets for 2025 and 2030. So we really need this revision process, but we also need countries to remain committed. Um, and then the last thing that I'll, I'll talk about here is that we also need to ensure that countries start preparing for their mid-century low-emission strategies without delay. Um, so that they can fit into the 2018 review and inform how close or how far we are from meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement. 
again, the need for constant monitoring, the need for constant feedback and accountability. And we hope that the, um, the Paris, um, the, the Makarish, uh conference actually brings this to the table. Mm, your final sentiments, Dominic, what would you like to see from COP22 as much as you're not very optimistic about these gatherings? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I don't know where this two degrees come from because from what I understand is that we added up all the countries in DC, we get a, a three degree warming. So I don't know where a two degree suddenly came from because we're not even at a two degree. So, you know, obviously from the Par- from the Marrakesh Agreement, personally I'm looking for um, the world to say nuclear energy is not um, the solution to climate change. It's not clean and it's um, a false solution. And I think that that's a really important step for the world to take. Well, thank you so much to both of our guests, giving, giving a different sides and different views on uh, their uh, perspectives on COP22. That was Dominic Doyle, who was giving Sorry, us the light. Can so, I say one more thing? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. We're marching this Friday from um, Westgate Taxi Rank in Johannesburg to the Constitutional Court in Bramfontein. Mm. Greenpeace Africa has been invited. And we always do a Global Day of Action COP March around this time for right, cool. climate action. Yeah. But this year our march is keep, cops out, keep nukes out of COP, keep nukes out of South Africa, and everyone's welcome to join. So how can people find more details? Do you guys have uh, some uh, maybe links online? Yeah, you can find it on our Facebook page, on our website, um, www.earthlifeafrica.org. Fantastic. Thank you for giving us that heads up. We'll see you on how we can also uh, be part of that as well. Thank you for giving us your thoughts there, Dominic Doyle, who is uh, from Earth Like Africa, and Nugutu Lamen, who's joining us uh, from Greenpeace Africa. Thank you both for giving us your time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Fantastic. Uh, that is an interesting conversation we've had there. I'm sure it's something that we're going to be looking at one more time. I think we have to revise this program and see what were the concrete uh, uh, actions that were uh, coming out from uh, COP22. Uh, uh, Give us your thoughts there. Uh, what do you think of this program? What do you think of uh, these climate change gatherings? Do you think there are toothless uh, conversations that keep happening year after year, as was highlighted there by uh, uh, Dominic Doyle. Uh, you can SMS us your thoughts on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. But also, we want you to be part of the Channel Africa family on our Twitter handle. So do go on at African Dialogue. That's at African Dialogue or at Channel Africa One, where you can be part of the experience of Channel Africa. And hey, let's quickly get a song. This one is titled "One World" by Kizuke. and fathers, sisters and brothers, do what we can to help each other. How soon we forget her, our own mother nature. Why is she crying? We can't let her fall, but she gave us love.
Well, that is uh, One World by Kids Who Care. That takes us to 11.45 Central African time. Amanda Machaka just reminded her me of her name. I think she thinks that I'll consistently forget her. You know what? She comes in and out these days. We don't see her consistently, so she mustn't blame me. But she's going to give us our business news now. Thanks, Benjamin. Good morning. The Connecting Africa Conference opens in Cape Town, South Africa. Delegates will track, analyze and report on all the major developments in Africa's communications market, identifying the key trends and talking to the movers and shakers who are transforming the continent. Connecting Africa will provide news coverage and analysis of the forces that are shaping digital Africa and will chart the latest developments, examining their potential to enable pivotal socioeconomic development. Botswana will not sell back its troubled 600-megawatt power plant to the Chinese company that built it. Documents from the Ministry of Mineral Resources, Green Technology and Energy Security show negotiations with China Machinery Engineering Corporation will start soon over the proposed sale of the coal-fired station. The power plant was built by... Another Chinese company, China National Electric Equipment Corporation, at a cost of 970 million U.S. dollars, but has broken down repeatedly since commissioning in 2012, leading to a reliance on diesel generators and imports from South Africa. 
South Africa's National Union of Mine Workers says the CEO of the power utility, Brian Mulefe, will plunge ESCOM into a fresh leadership crisis. Mulefe announced on Friday that he would leave the power utility at the end of December. However, he says his departure doesn't mean admission of guilt in the state of capture report, which implicated him and ESCOM. The union spokesperson, Livuani Mamburu, says Mulefe's departure is premature. There are allegations um, that have been leveled against uh, Brian Mulif and, and, and ESCOM. He needed to wait for the commission to be set up and then he can clarify those allegations. We are really disappointed that ESCOM is in a leadership crisis uh, at the moment. Because our members, even though they had differences with Brian, but he was a talented and good uh, chief executive officer, now there's going to be leadership crisis. A lot of the CEOs are disappointed at ESCOM. South Africa's biggest mobile phone operator, Vodacom, has reported flat half-year earnings on Monday. The mobile operator says headline earnings per share, which strips out certain one-off items and is the main profit measure in South Africa, was unchanged year-on-year at 440 cents for the six months to September 13. Group data revenue was up 18.7%, supported by strong network investment. The South African unit of Brian, of Britain's Vodafone has spent 2.58 billion US dollars over the past three years to expand its network. And annual inflation in Nigeria has accelerated in October to 18.3% from 17.9% a month earlier. A separate index for food rose to 17.1% from September's 16.6%. And taking a look at your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 14.29 to the South African rand, at 10.69 to the Botswana Pula, and at 9.77 to the Zambian Kwacha. It's at 0.79 to the British pound and at 0.92 to the euro. On to commodities, gold is at $1,217 and platinum at $937 an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $44.70 a barrel. That's all for now. Up next is your sports news. With Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, it's rugby news. President of South African Rugby, Mark Alexander, congratulated the three South Africans, Siabedo Sinatla, Rasta Rasibenge, and Jean de Villiers, who walked away with honors in various categories at the prestigious World Rugby Awards in London on Sunday night. Sinatla became the third South African to be crowned the World Rugby Men's Sevens Player of the Year in association with HSBC when he edged out Fiji's Osia Kolinasau and Virimi Vakatawa of France for the top award. He scored 66 tries in 10 events in the 2015 stroke 16 HSBC World Rugby Sevens Series, which was the second highest in the 17-year history of the series before adding four more tries at the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio. And Velem Alberts believes execution rather than a confusing game plan was at fault for South Africa's first loss in 10 years to England. The Springboks lost their first test to England since 2006, 
going down 37-21, while Eddie Jones' side maintained an unbeaten run in 2016. Albert admitted England's ball handling were better than that of the box. The loose forward played out of position at open flank rather than usual blind side, says South Africa must find a better balance between when the kick and when to run with the ball. A failure to control his emotions and temper has landed Bafana Bafana head coach Ifram Sheikh Mashaba in trouble with his employers. Safa announced that they've deemed it necessary to employ disciplinary measures against Mashaba after a regrettable incident following Bafana's 2-1 win over Senegal. Vedi Lembuli has got the inside info on this incident. As soon as Safa clinched their first win in the 2018 World Cup qualifiers, the confrontational coach went on a rampage, delaying the post-match TV interviews by more than 10 minutes, as is alleged to have directed them to interview Safa officials including the president, Denis Jojan, who he remarked that wanted him out of his job. From there, Mashaba is alleged to have taken the fight to some of his Safa colleagues, whom he alleged that together with the leadership, they want him gone. But his comments in the post-match conference highlighted something. What does this win mean to me? <laughs> it's a second lease of life. I was dead already. Dead already. So that's why I say this. It came in as a second lease of life, you know? And uh, I've developed a habit of normal buying newspapers because every day you read more or less one and the same thing. And I, I, I needed to sort of like enjoy life like any other person. Nigeria started their campaign at the 2016 FIFA Under-20 Women's World Cup on a bad note as the Falcons were defeated 6-0 by Japan. The Japanese were superior in all departments of the game and made light work of a shaky Nigerian team who looked disjointed from the blast of the whistle. Nigeria will next face Canada on the 16th of November as they look to get back on track in Group B. And finally, with golf news, Alex Nuoren has won the NetBank Golf Challenge, closing with a round of 63 for under 14 par and 6 strokes victory. Nick Dyer reports. Well, it's Alex Noren who's won the Nedbank Golf Challenge in quite sensational style. The Swede has closed with a round of 63 for 14 under par and a six-strokes victory. It's his fourth European Tour title of the season. Noren had led at halfway but found himself a long way adrift of Wang Jun-hung into the last round. Yet six birdies came on the front nine and once the South Korean slipped to a double bogey at the eighth, Noren snatched the lead. He never looked back. He'd won in Scotland, Switzerland and the British Masters. Having become a father earlier this year too, it really is the best year of his life. Wang held on for second spot with Brandon Grace, the leading South African, in a share of third place. Henrik Stenson in eighth has extended his advantage in the race to Dubai. But the race is not yet won as Danny Willett climbed to 11th position at Sun City. Noren is third in the race ahead of Dubai next week and up to ninth in the world rankings. Brandon Grace leads the South African charge on minus seven and he could have finished in second position had it not been for the three-part on the last hole. He shares third position with a cluster of players while Louis Ossiezen and Jakob van Sale drop to ninth and tenth respectively on minus five and four. That's your sport news this hour.
Well, that's how we wrap it up. Thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We'll be back tomorrow, uh, same place, same time, right here on Channel Africa. Until then, for me, Benjamin Mushatama, God bless. <laughs>